Let's go to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're just going to read three verses here, and then we're going to kind of begin this journey. Today's sermon is going to be uh, somewhat of a journey for us. I want to take you on a little trip and tell you a story, and I believe that God's going to help us. Amen? The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month, Chlesu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan at the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came in, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. They said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. And watch this. This is where we'll draw our text. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. And the gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah is a great, great story of how to rebuild in a season of brokenness. But what we have here in short, and I'm going to get into this momentarily and kind of tell you the story. But Ezra comes in and rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah comes into the story. And we've got a temple and a city being rebuilt. That has no walls. What good is it to build a city. But have no walls. And so what we see is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. As they come back into the holy city. To recover what they have. But here's the issue. And this is what I want to preach to you today. They were reborn. But not recovered. Reborn. But not recovered. You may be seated in Jesus' name. I don't want to uh, make you feel like you're sitting through a college lecture, but I need to spend about five minutes with you here at the beginning to lay some groundwork for you. If, uh, If you're struggling this morning and you're sleepy, before we get started, just raise your hand. We'll be passing out Red Bulls. Not really. I'm just joking. My mom won't let me drink those. (laughs) So the year is 446 B.C. A full 90 years have transpired since one of the grandest moments in all of Jewish history as recorded. Just under one century before this time, more than 50,000 Jews had been released by the edict of one named Cyrus, who was the leader of the Medo-Persians. Through the leadership of a remarkable and dedicated man by the name of Zerubbabel, they had returned to Jerusalem From their exile. To say they returned refers to the Jews as a people, for 
In fact, very few of the contingent who returned to Jerusalem had actually ever been to Jerusalem. These were the exiles returning were the children and the grandchildren of the people who had been taken captive during the conquest and ultimate destruction of Jerusalem by the renowned Nebuchadnezzar who was the dreaded monarch of ancient Babylon. So these people that are quote unquote returning to Jerusalem are people that are rightful heirs by their bloodline and not by where their foot had tread. Because they were a people of covenant, because they were God's children, they are coming back into Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had not only taken them out and brought them into Babylonian captivity, but consistent with methods of conquerors in that era, Nebuchadnezzar was not satisfied to just destroy the morale of the people by taking them captive. He wanted them to feel as low as he could. So as he takes the people out of Jerusalem as captive slaves back into Babylon, on their way out of town, this dreaded monarch, does everything he can to break their spirit totally. And he begins to destroy their city before their eyes. He levels it and burns it to the ground. While his soldiers corralled and bring together thousands upon thousands, they drive them out like cattle, beating them, herding them from their homeland to Babylon. Their transport to a distant culture meant rethinking everything that they had known. But this man knew how to conquer their spirit. Because he didn't just want to get them out of Jerusalem. He wanted to get Jerusalem out of them. It's going to be a little long introduction, but we got to get there. He said, I can't just get them out of Jerusalem and solve the problem. Because if I don't destroy Jerusalem, then Jerusalem lives in their hearts. And they will always compare Babylon to Jerusalem. So the last image of Jerusalem in their mind will be burning buildings, destroyed temples, broke down walls, beat down spirits. And that is how I want them to remember Jerusalem. For if I can ever get Jerusalem out of them, keeping them in Babylon won't be a problem. Now, folks, we've got to back up here and take a look at something. Why in the world did Nebuchadnezzar want them in Babylon? He did not want Jerusalem. He wanted the people. I could preach right here for about three months. The enemy is not after us to get the church. He wants the people of God. He wants what you can offer to him. The Bible said that the king brought them to the table, sat them down, and began to teach them in the ways and the culture and the language of the Chaldeans. 
He's, he figures if he can get them to eat at the king's table and begin to speak the king's language that he is making them forget Jerusalem day by day. If I can put a taste of something in their mouth that they have never had. Oh, Lord, I'm trying to slow down. If I can just make the city appealing enough to them and the flavor of the city good enough to them, they'll never want to go back. So let me be brutally honest with you and tell you today it is an absolute lie when people tell you that the world has nothing to offer you. We would not be surrounded by a party culture and environment if the world had nothing to offer. The difference is that Babylon was a temporal home for them and Jerusalem was to be their eternal home. So you understand? Oh man, I'm already preaching and I'm not trying. When your affection level moves from a higher plane... And become set upon what pleases you right now. What makes you happy right now. What makes you feel better about life right now. And you lower your gaze from an eternal place. And you set your affections on things below where moth and rust doth corrupt. Begin to lose your love for the things that God had for you. So, we've got an issue. He doesn't want the city, he wants the people. He wants what they offer. He wants their wisdom. Do you know who it was that counseled all the wise men of Babylon? It was Daniel. Daniel was given leadership over all the magi. The wisest people in Babylon, and oh, if I could just get this in your spirit. The wisest people in Babylon relied on the wisdom of a young Hebrew boy. There is something different about the wisdom of God that works in your life. Listen. The Magi, the wise men that were in Babylon were astronomers. So why then did they want Daniel to speak with the astronomers, the wise men, the Magi? Why in the world would they bring in a Hebrew boy to allow him to speak into the lives of astronomers? Well, it's pretty simple. They knew about the stars. Daniel knew about the Creator. They knew about markers in the sky. They knew that stars did different things and there were movements that they had to keep their eye on. But it was Daniel who said, I want you to keep your eyes towards Jerusalem because there's going to be a bright and shining star. And when you see that star, you're going to know that the Messiah that we've been praying for has finally come. So who was it that arrives 
When Jesus is born and then at about three years of age, who was it that arrives bringing him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Who was it? It was the Magi from the East. Guess where they came from? They wouldn't have known this without the wisdom of the Hebrews. So they didn't, want the, they didn't want the buildings. They didn't want the structures. They wanted the people. The people were the commodity of the kingdom. Oh, man. Can I tell you that without you precious people today, this is nothing but brick and mortar and carpet and paint. It's just a building. But when God's people get together and these pews are filled with testimonies, it's no longer just a building. It is a place that houses Lord Jesus. It houses the vessels of God that have learned what it's like to overcome the world. Just, oh, Lordy, I hope I can get there today. So prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, the actual exiling of those thousands of Jews, Nebuchadnezzar had earlier gained dominion over Judea and its capital city, Jerusalem. For a season of nearly 20 years, he had installed puppet kings to govern the area, to keep them both accountable and taxable to him. But due to recurrent resistance and sporadic instances of political rebellion against his government, he finally determined to sack the city, to destroy the city. During the period of those puppet kings, we know them as Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, God raised up a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Who relentlessly warned the people that the judgment of the Lord would come. A history of willful disregard for God's law was bringing down the curtain of the glory days of Judea's past. And Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah predicted rather that the dwellers of Jerusalem would be in captivity that would last them for 70 years, 25 years. And 11 of Jeremiah, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Can I tell you right now that God has always had a voice. And he always will have a voice. I don't care how dark the nation becomes. God will always have a prophet that will have a voice. Don't you worry about Babylon. Don't you worry about Jerusalem. There is a prophet that will raise their voice in this generation. God has always had a remnant. God has always had a people. And God always will have a people. Pastor so-and-so's gone charismatic. They've quit preaching truth. They've stopped preaching that. I want to tell you that God has always had a remnant. There will always be a church. So he promises them 70 years. Then in 29, 10 through 14, he also promises them there would be a return. You'll be reborn for thus saith the Lord. After the 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. He said, I am going to come to you and perform my good word toward you. In causing you to return to this place. 
For I know the thoughts. See, this is the scripture that people talk about all the time. How many times have you heard it quoted? For I know the thoughts. You've heard it, right? It's like charisma's favorite scripture. I know the thoughts I have towards you. You know what he's talking about? Thoughts of return. Repentance. Come out of exile. Be healed. Woo. It's not just good thoughts toward me. I know that's the picture people want that God just sits on the throne. Oh, I've got good thoughts towards them. You know what his good thoughts were? You're going to be my people. And you cannot be my people with that kind of spirit in you. I'm going to have to visit you in Babylon and we're going to bring you back home. Do you know what his good thoughts are for the backslider or the cold child of God that's seated in the house of the Lord today trying to figure out if it's worth it? God has good thoughts towards you. That thought is come back home. I'm reaching today for that backslider, that prodigal that may be watching on the internet today. I'm saying there's never been a better time to come back home. He said, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. They're thoughts of peace. They're not thoughts of evil. To give you and expect it in, not unexpected. Like we can determine this. We can expect something here. Then shall you call on me. You shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and you shall seek me, and you shall find me, when you shall, shall search for me with whatever part of your heart you want to give me. When you pick and choose what part you want to seek me with, then that's the part I will respond to you. He said, I will be found of you. I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. I will bring you again to the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So as the 70 years are drawing to a close, the captivity is coming to a close. An amazing combination of international events begin to weave together. And I don't want to bore you with this. But it's so important in this swirl of prophetic and historic activity. God was at work restoring his people while nations and their kings unwittingly bowed to the performance of his will. God raised up a man by the name of Cyrus that was not godly. He was not holy. He was not separated He was a man that God said, I can use this man to release my people. If you would have taken a vote in Babylon and said, who is it going to be that sets us free and gets us back? Not one person would have voted and said, Cyrus. 
but he holds the hearts of kings in his hands and he reaches down into that heart of Cyrus and he begins to massage and at night when he lays down something comes to Cyrus and says you've got to let those people go you've got to release them you've got to get them back home can I tell you right now what I believe I believe that before God's children are called back home that there is going to be one more chance oh Jesus I believe there's going to be one more revival that's going to be as powerful as you have ever seen. I believe that God is going to begin to manipulate and move world leaders into the right spot. You know why? Because he said go into all the world and preach the gospel. God is going to give us a road into the nations of the world. Stay with me. Everybody okay? Now, I'm trying to hurry. I got to work through this. It's important. So was it just a coincidence that God did this? Was it just, was it just happenstance? Or was it in the plan of God? It's a good question. I'm really glad you asked. The forecast becomes all the more phenomenal when God just does not declare through his word that they would be freed, but that God actually through Isaiah speaks the name of the man 200 years before he was even born. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus saith the Lord. Everybody okay with reading the Bible on Sunday morning? Is that all right? Thy Redeemer and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth the broad of the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up uh, the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up the rivers, that saith... Hang on, I think my notes are off here. What's that, What's that say? Saith of Cyrus? Not even born. It's 200 years before Cyrus is even born. And the Lord said, I've got a shepherd. Let me just break it down and preach it to you. Before you ever went in, he made a way for you to come out. Before you ever walked into your trouble, God had a shepherd. Before, oh Jesus. Ah. Ah. Oh God, help us. This is so powerful. He is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. The next chapter, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Cyrus, you didn't even know this. But before you ever drew your first breath, there was a hand on you. He said to Cyrus, 
my anointed, whose right hand have I holden to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gate. The gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give to thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. I'm telling you, You can't question for one minute whether or not the will of God will be done in the earth. You hear this preacher. Now, let's start bringing this back together. I'm fixing to start swinging now. I'm I'm, I'm working my way out of this introduction. i got to get to my sermon. Listen. One of the most positive impacts that the Babylonian captivity had on Jerusalem, on Israel, on God's people was that polytheism, the idolatrous worship of many gods, begins to be expelled from their minds because they see what happens to a nation that worships idolatry rather than the one true living God. Henceforth, only Jehovah would be their God forevermore. The words of Moses began to echo through their ear chambers. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. So why does God deal with Cyrus and then deal with their hearts? Well, you can tell exactly where they're at. Because the day they move in to Jerusalem, Ezra said that the men began to build the temple. The number one priority on the mind of the people was where shall we worship? Where shall we sacrifice? Do you know how you can really tell when God has done a work in somebody's life? It's when he brings them out of their exile. The first question on their mind is where do I worship and where do I sacrifice? Tell you right now that their motive was not building a bigger house, getting a nicer chariot. They said, we want to build a house for God. But we've got issues. The temple's completed. Ezra said it took 20 years. They invested 20 years in it from its inception. Now it's 516 B.C. The temple's done. It's finished. They're still dealing with some things that they got to deal with. But listen to Pastor when I tell you that two full generations of time have elapsed and passed. And they got him a temple. Got it finished. But after two generations of completing a house for God, there's still no walls. Now I'm getting ready to preach to you right here. So just get your seatbelts on and let's go. The people had a complete rebirth but not complete recovery. 
So they come in, they build a temple, they get it all ready. They got the spiritual thing all taken care of. I got it. Man, we've got a temple now. We can offer sacrifice. But you listen to what I'm telling you today. That a people who will not fight for their walls are a people who will eventually lose their temple. You can't afford to miss what I'm saying to you right now. A people that will not fight for walls are a people that will eventually lose their temple. It had already been destroyed. They already saw what destruction did. What I want to know is at what point in history are we as the body of Christ going to learn that a temple without walls is absolutely vulnerable to be destroyed again? Reborn, but not recovered. And as such, they are a type of those in the church who are saved but are still broken. Baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost but still fighting the same old devils. Filled with the Spirit of God as the temple of the Holy Ghost. And walk right out of this sanctuary still with no walls. Now, I'm going to break it down for you right here, so let's just get real on this Sunday morning. You do not become a superhuman when you get baptized in Jesus' name. You do not become a superhero because you spoke in other tongues. And if you keep going back to where you always went and keep living how you always lived and keep doing what you always did, What we're seeing in the 21st century church is an epidemic of people who love the feel good of salvation. They have been reborn, but they have yet to recover. They love to come to church and get the feeling that we get when we worship. And oh, to go down in a watery grave and get chills when you come up. But I'm telling you, there is more to a water grave of baptism than just feeling good and washing your sins away. It's a commitment. It's a covenant. It's a power of God working in your life. We are buried with him in baptism. Filled with the spirit. That is the rebuilding of the temple. Now you have been reborn. But you are not recovered. Listen to what I'm telling you today in the Holy Ghost. You are not an afterthought of God. You are the apple of his eye. You are not a second-rate citizen. You are not on God's back burner. He's had his eye on you since the day you were born and before. You've got purpose in you. You've got greatness in you. You've got ministry in you. And so here's what happens. The enemy, and I know you're not going to believe this, but the enemy is okay with you coming to FPC and getting hyped up. He is completely fine with that. He is absolutely fine with you coming up here and getting a good enough feeling of the Holy Ghost that you feel better. But you become his worst nightmare 
When you realize that God created you to do more, then clap your hands and stomp your feet and speak in other tongues. I feel like telling somebody in the house today, it doesn't matter to me if you're having a hard time believing it or not. You are more than a conqueror. You are... You are victorious. God's got his hand on you today. Now, I'm going to work with this for just a minute. I'm going to try to get you out of here. But the purpose of Babylonian captivity, as I told you, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get the culture of Jerusalem, the, the, the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture, out of them and make them fall in love with the Chaldean culture. Can I tell you that it had an adverse effect on them when they came out of Babylon and got back into Jerusalem because this generation that's rebuilding is a generation that never saw the glory of the temple before. Mm. And they could not get out of their system all of the things that they had learned in the world, so to speak. All of their habits were not learned in Jerusalem. They were learned in Babylon. It is going to be a work. It's going to take time. But can I tell you today, it's all right to let God work on you. It's all right to let God move on your spirit. It's all right to let God touch your heart. Hey, I'm telling you, church family, you cannot go where you've always gone and do what you've always done and get free from Babylon. I know. Pastor, I got the Holy Ghost now. Yeah, you do. But there's a false doctrine out there that says you can't lose it either. You can absolutely take this precious opportunity that God has given you and walk back in. <laughs> Stuff happens so crazy, nobody even believes me when I tell you. But let me just throw this out here. And let, me, let me just try to say this to save all names and people and places. I just want to tell you that a bar is not a good place to do a Bible study. Well, God's given me a burden for women that are abusing their bodies. Well, going, going to the strip club and bringing them out, is not a, that's, not a, that's not a good place for ministry. Right, right, right. Folks, I'm going to be as real as I can be with you right here, and it might get just a little bit tense, okay? So just stay with me. But there is a spirit of Saul in this earth that operates in people that says, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do and then say I'm offering it to God. They let Agag live, and I don't have time to preach all this. If you understand the story, if you don't, I'll explain it to you. But God told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, and he said, but there's part of it that I want to keep for me. And when the prophet came to him, he said, oh, I actually kept that for God. If we're not careful, we're going to get the temple thing figured out and get filled with the Holy Ghost. But we're going to leave ourselves so exposed to this old world. That if we don't care enough to build walls, we're going to wake up one day and this old temple is going to crumble to the ground. And we're going to end up lost. Listen, 
The only way that hell could be any worse than it already is is for somebody that sat in an apostolic church, got filled with the Holy Ghost, and baptized in Jesus' name, but walked out on God. It's Sunday morning, so the atmosphere is getting ready to change in here. I'm just telling you. But we've got to get back to believing that eternity is real. We got to get, I understand, man, people are so funny. They're like, oh, please tell me you're not one of them hellfire and brimstone preachers. Well, we need a bunch more of them. What are you, you going to do if that offends people? You know what? I lived my life getting offended as a kid. I did. I was offended every time my dad took his belt off to whoop me. I was offended every time my mother took my dad's belt and whooped me. But you know why I am what I am today? Because I didn't let offense stay and I learned a lesson. I don't know why people are afraid to preach a hell. You know why I think they are? It's because they don't believe it's real. If we really believed in eternity the way we say we do, we'd do whatever we had to do to keep every person we met from going to hell. Now through the hand claps, I want you to hear me very closely. We'd reach for them if they had money or if they didn't. We'd reach for them at McDonald's or the steakhouse. We go for the people that don't deserve my time in prison. They made their bed, let them lay in it. Well, you've made some too, but God got you out of it. I'm telling you, there is not a living, breathing, moving person in this room today that has not made some mistakes. There's not a person in this room today that hasn't messed up. But there is not a person in this world that does not deserve to hear the message of Jesus. Oh. Turn the corner. I got to get where I'm going. But I feel like telling somebody today that when men fail... In the garden, there were two things that were lost in the fall. That was a relationship with God and our rulership under God. In the New Testament, and I, I'm, I'm hurrying. I wish I had time to finish this. I sat in my office this morning thinking, there's no way I'm going to get through this. In the New Testament, the Bible's talking about a bishop, and I don't want to take this out of context. Speaking of a pastor, a bishop, a leader. It says that if he cannot rule well in his own house, then he cannot rule in the house of God. Okay? I'm, I'm doing this in a, in a fast pace. If he cannot take care of his own house, but when we say that, we often talk about his wife and his children. I want to tell you it's a little deeper than just a man's wife and his children. It's a man ruling in his own house. You can never, ever, ever be effective in the kingdom of God if you don't have control of your house. 
And sometimes the best offense is a good defense. Where we're not living in recovery mode from what was broken again because we were willing at the rebirth to just put some walls around us and say, I will never be that again. Trying to help you. One of the saddest things I ever read was a few years ago. I read a story, a, a study that the Air Force had done. And in this, in this study, they said that people forget set over 70% of what you say within 10 minutes after you say it. So please go back and watch this. Because I want to help you. We've got to break the epidemic in Pentecost of jumping in the baptistry talking in tongues and feeling good and getting stuck in the same vicious cycle. Something has got to bring structure to us. But pastor, if I do that, what if so-and-so leaves me? What if they neglect me? What if they walk away from me? Can I say this and not be insensitive? If you've been a member of this church or been around here very long, you've heard me say it. If not, you're about to hear it. This is one of my things. I believe it. There is nobody in the world. What's the pastor about to say? Nobody. Write it down. I'm not going to hell for anybody. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to be lost for anybody. Nobody said it doesn't hurt if you lose relationships. Nobody said it's not painful. But you hear this preacher. Either they're going to come in the walls and get their temple fixed. Or their temple will be destroyed. But you cannot afford to be lost over it. So here's the the principle. Walls had to have gates. Regulators. Do you know where judges ruled in the cities? And gates. Here's the power of it, and I've got to quit. I'm never going to finish. I've got to quit right here. Listen to me. The gates are where government happened. The walls did not just protect the temple. It regulated what you let in. Hmm. Jesus said, you have heard it said of old that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, that he's to be stoned. Right? He said, but I say unto you that if a man looks on a woman and lusteth after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery. That does not mean, you have to understand the language, that does not mean that the Lord's saying he's an adulterer. What the Lord is saying is that man right there has worked on his temple, but he has no walls. Listen, the, the, the law, the law said, if you do it and get caught in the act of it, you're stoned. Jesus said, here's a good principle. If you don't want to get stoned for sin, then put some walls around it and say, forget sin and I'm not even looking at it. It's amazing 
You've got the ability to set the parameters and the distance of standard in your life as to how far away you'll keep the enemy from your temple. You know why I preach the way I preach? Because not everybody needs a TV. You listen to this, man. I'm telling you, not everybody needs a computer, and not everybody needs a smartphone. Some folks would be better off to go to heaven with a flip phone. I didn't figure anybody would be running laps. But wherever there's walls, there's gates. That's where government happens. That's where his government rules in my life. I build the walls, and he puts guards at my gate of government. Oh, God, I wish I could preach this. The government of God is in the gates, and the glory of God is in the temple. And somewhere between, oh, Jesus. And somewhere between his government and his glory, there has got to be conviction. It's a revelation. you got to let that sink into your spirit. Between the gates of his government and the temple of his glory, there has got to be conviction in my life. He rules in government His glory and His power is what I long for. But if I want to keep the glory, I've got to live in conviction and stay submitted to His government. There is only one way for somebody to get saved. But it takes a lot of ways for somebody to stay saved. And what it takes for me to stay saved may be different than what it takes for you to be saved. But we've got to quit negotiating with the enemy because we don't think it's necessary. Between his government and his glory, we've got to get conviction. Hmm. This was so much better in the mirror. I preached this over and over sitting at my desk this morning. I didn't really preach in the mirror, but I did preach at my desk. I don't know how to draw this picture for you all today. But if this altar call is going to move us in any direction, it's going to be with establishing the walls and the boundaries in our life. But understanding that what happens between his government and his glory is not God's responsibility. Because inside the gates and inside the walls, there was a temple, but there were also homes. Brother Stephen, I wish I could do this this morning. The temple was where they worshiped. The home was where they lived. So if I could draw this picture for you, I wish I could draw it like a picture, but it's just a word picture. So the place of conviction is in the home. Between the gate of government and the glory of God in the house of God, there is a house. And that's where conviction starts. Church family, you do not get conviction 
sitting in a room like this. God may convict your heart, but a conviction is not something that you'll just live for. It's something you'll die for. You get conviction just like Nehemiah did. I wish I could, I wish I could uh, do it for you. There's, I believe there's 13 different prayers recorded in the, in the book of Nehemiah. 13 prayers. How in the world does somebody like that stay on the wall? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is not where I find out how much God likes me. Prayer is where I get to know him. Prayer is where I find conviction. Prayer is where, and I can't just pray at church. I've got to pray in my house. I've got to pray in conviction between his government and his glory. I've got to pray. I'm asking you right now to lift your hands to the Lord. I feel God trying to do something in this room. Uh, oh, Jesus. Come on, church. Will you just help pastor right now? Oh, God, help us. God, make us disciples. Make us disciples. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. If you're not satisfied today to just be born again, but you want to be restored and recovered in this house, I want you to make your way to the front of this church right now. The Holy Ghost is moving and working in this room. Oh, God, make us a people of conviction.